one of my favorite Chicago landmarks is the iconic breakfast destination known as Ann Sather's. You can find it at 909 West Belmont. You know, Ann Sather's is a good place for me uh, on one level. They serve gooey and life-changing cinnamon rolls there. But it's a good place on a much deeper level because it's a historic landmark in my relationship with my wife, Laura. Fourteen years ago, we had one of the most painful conversations in our relationship ever at 909 West Belmont. We'd been seeing each other for about six months, and um, things were going pretty well. But unless something changed, the relationship was going to end. So we sat there at the table, and we asked each other some hard questions. We identified our hurts. We, We gave voice to our doubts. Truth and tears came out at 909 West Belmont. And that painful conversation totally saved our fledgling relationship. Have you ever had a conversation like that? Not a conversation where you're necessarily defining a relationship, but you're actually trying to save a relationship. And there's a name for a conversation like that. It's called an intervention. It's where one or both parties say, you know what, I I love you, but unless something changes, this relationship is going to fail. This relationship is going to end. If it's going to survive, I've got to speak some truth. I've got to name some blind spots that up till now you've not been willing to see. I must plead for some kind of a response because unless there's a response, there will not be a relationship when we get up from this table. Have you ever had an intervention? Have you ever been on the other side of an intervention? It's really painful and it can be really good. Now tonight is Good Friday and on this Good Friday, Jesus is staging an intervention. You know, in this period of Lent, we've been walking through Jesus' letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. It's a series we've called, Return to Your First Love. Return to Your First Love. Let's get some vertical reconciliation going here. Let's identify where we've assimilated to our culture more than we have assimilated to Jesus Christ. Now, each letter, up till now, has contained three basic elements. You've got a commendation for things that are going well. Hey, you've been, you've been faithful, and I know it's been hard, and I've seen it. And then there's been, um, there's been a rebuke for something that's lacking. And then finally, there's a promise. There's a vision of the city to come to keep them motivated. Now, the letter to the church that we're going to look at tonight, the letter to the church in Laodicea is lacking one of those three. There's no condemnation. There's no commendation. There's nothing good to say to this church in Laodicea. 
Whereas other churches, they've been partially faithful. There's been some kind of remnant that's, that's like holding on to, to Jesus and his call. In Laodicea, there's no remnant. But Jesus still loves them, even though they've completely assimilated to the values of their city. Jesus has come to save the relationship. He's sitting down with them and he's staging an intervention. It's a good Friday conversation. It's an intervention. And he comes with absolutely true insights. And this is so important. He's going to bring together both truth and love. You can see in Revelation, which is a couple pages back, Revelation 3, verse 14, says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He is a faithful and true witness. What he is about to say is absolutely true. It might be painful, but it's accurate. But he comes with deep love too. Verse 19 says this, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He's passed through death and hell to have this conversation. He wants this conversation. He wants this relationship. He's in. Is Laodicea in? And are we in? Have you ever had a conversation with someone who so loves you and has painful things to say to you? Have you ever had a conversation like that? Those are so intense. Those are so hard to sustain. And they're relationship-saving. They are life-saving. They are good. Tonight, Good Friday, on one level, is good because of what we have to see. That's really tough, what we have to see. We see Jesus on the cross. But tonight, on another level, Good Friday is is difficult because of what we have to hear. There's a message from Jesus. Truth and tears might come out. And we just might return to our first love. Verse 15, he says this. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You know, Jesus has has a really stinging diagnosis. And it's visceral. This isn't just some analysis from the outside. This is, Jesus' stomach is turned. He's tasting Laodicean works And it's revolting to him. He's gagging. This is so personal for Jesus. He's been watching their life. He's been watching the way they spend money and time. He's been watching the way they relate with their culture. He's been watching the way they relate with their families. Their private space. Their prayer life their appetites, their imaginations. And he's like, this is lukewarm. This is revolting 
Only a loving Savior could be this honest. Who else would just come out and say it like this? Don't you want Jesus to be honest with you? You do. You don't want him to pull punches. We need to have conversations like this. Now, we might ask, what does lukewarm mean? And the way water worked in Laodicea might help us understand. What does it mean that he wishes they were either cold or hot? Laodicea had no natural water supply. Everything had to be piped in. Every water source had to be piped in from miles and miles away. They got their cold water from Colossae, which was 11 miles to the east. And this, this cold water, if you got it in Colossae, was really refreshing to drink. Incredibly refreshing. If you've ever had fresh, cold, running water, or better yet, if you've ever gone without it for a while, and you taste it, and it's hot outside, but the water's refreshing and cold... You know how refreshing cold water can be. And you could get it in Colossae, but they had to pipe it in 11 miles to the west so it could get to Laodicea. Now then there was hot water. There was a natural 95-degree hot springs in Hierapolis, which was six miles to the north, about the distance from between here and Evanston. And this hot water, this 95-degree water, felt really good. It was used, people would go to Hierapolis for medical reasons because of this water. And this water was medicinal, and it, and it was healing. But it had to be piped in to Laodicea. So what do you do when you're in Laodicea and you are so parched for a drink? Well, you get the water from Colossae, but it's been traveling for a long time. There's ancient pipes, and they're working okay, but it's really hot outside, and the pipes are hot. And you know, it kind of adjusts to the air around it, and by the time it gets to you in Laodicea, you're like, oh yeah, the big gulp, and ah, it doesn't taste very good. And then you're like, oh, I have an injury, and I need me some of the hot, of the icy hot, and I need that 95-degree water. And that 95-degree water is boiled over here in the natural hot springs, and then it's piped all the way to you in Laodicea, and, then, and, and, and the doctors in Laodicea are like, all right, let's, let's get some of the hot water, and you pour it out on your injured elbow or whatever, and it's like, wah, wah. it's not very hot. It's not very healing. What do you do if you live in Laodicea? You deal with cold water that's not really cold anymore. It's not really refreshing. You deal with hot water that's not really hot anymore. It's too assimilated. And it's not healing anymore. It's not a source of healing. The metaphor is ambiguous. But the fact remains that the Laodiceans had so thoroughly assimilated that they were neither a source of God's refreshment and they were not a source of God's healing. They had so assimilated to the Greco-Roman values of Laodicea that they were not anymore the distinct, refreshing, healing people of Jesus Christ. And something had to change. So what did they assimilate to? Jesus 
references this in verse 17. For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Of all the churches in Asia Minor that Jesus wrote to, Laodicea was the wealthiest church there was. They had the most money. Um, Laodicea was the one city in Asia Minor that when there was a massive earthquake in 60 AD, they were the only ones not writing to Rome begging for help, begging for financial assistance. Everyone else was like, we had this huge earthquake and we need the massive help of Rome to help us rebuild. But as Tacitus wrote in his annals, he says, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. They had lots of money. Not only that, they were a medical center. And they had a famous eye school, well known for producing an eye salve that was sold all over the Roman Empire. And what's more, Laodicea had this incredible clothing industry as well. They made these beautiful black tunics. They raised black sheep, and then they would take the cotton, and they would make these incredible black garments that were rare and in demand. They had it all. They had material wealth. They had bodily health. And they had the clothes. They were well-dressed. And you know what they said at the end of the day? I don't need anything. I'm good. No, 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 I'm good. I got it. I'm fine. Have you ever met someone like that? Do you know how hard it is when you feel like you don't need anything? You don't really need anybody? What does that do to intimacy? What does that do to relationships? You aren't vulnerable anymore. You found a way to control life. You don't have any vulnerabilities. You don't need people, really. And you don't need God. It messes with your view of yourself and it messes with your view of God. It's a spiritual handicap to have the feeling and the lived experience of, I don't need anything. I'm fine. I've done quite well for myself, actually. We become completely unaware of our profound vulnerabilities. The passion for love isn't there. The passion for God isn't there. And the depth isn't there either. When we never suffer and we never fail and we get everything we want and we have everything we need, we become shallow people who are incapable of empathy, incapable of love, incapable of uh, revealing our true vulnerabilities. And that's why Jesus had to stage this intervention with Laodicea and set things right. The end of verse 17, he says, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. One commentator says this, despite their banks, they were beggars. Despite their famous eye salve, they were blind. Despite their prosperous clothing factories, they were naked. You know, in the scriptures, spiritual blindness often refers to, or spiritual nakedness often is a metaphor for just, for our record of guilt and shame, things aren't right. We haven't lived up to God's standards. 
And we're, we're spiritually exposed. We need to be covered. And spiritual poverty is, is our inability to do anything about it. We can't make our own spiritual clothes and cover ourselves. And then spiritual blindness is the worst of all. It's, it's our, it's our lack, profound lack of self-awareness. It's our profound, thoroughgoing blind spot. We don't see our own weaknesses. We don't see our own need for God. We don't have the faintest clue of how deep the problem goes. The truth is that the Laodiceans were compromising in probably almost every way imaginable in their city. If they were this wealthy, there's no way that they could have been resisting the sexualized idol feasts in the local temple where they would drink, where they would worship the local idol, where they would confess Caesar as Lord just to keep the business contacts rolling. They had to keep their relationship with Jesus as private as it needed to be in order to get along and go along in Laodicea. As private and as least consequential as it needs to be to keep the status quo, to keep the material, wealth, the health, and the clothes. That's what they had to do. Truth and tears. Jesus laying all this out at the table would have been really hard to take. But that's not where it ends. Jesus offers the Laodiceans something so good, so loving. He wants to give them a series of gifts. It's an offer of grace. And if they say yes to these gifts, the relationship is saved. So he says this in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you will be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Here Jesus is holding gifts in his hands, gifts that he purchased with his blood and with his sacrifice. He offers them gold refined in the fire. And this here is Jesus' offer of spiritual wealth that he will give them but it will not come without fire. It's a gift of grace, but once we receive the spiritual wealth that Jesus offers us, it will be refined by fire. Gold, when it is refined, has to have fire underneath it. And when the fire comes underneath the gold, the impurities rise to the surface. And when the impurities rise to the surface, the impurities can be shaved away, taken off the top. If any of you know people with spiritual depth, you know that spiritual depth and spiritual wealth cannot come without suffering where Jesus is walking right by your side. And this is a gift. And anyone who has walked through it will tell you, it was hard, and I wouldn't necessarily ask for it, but it was a gift. And I would never have it any other way now that I've gone through it. Jesus is offering this as a gift to the Laodiceans. Do you want depth? Do you want spiritual wealth? I've got gold for you refined by the fire because I became poor so that you could become rich. He offers them white garments for their nakedness. Jesus was stripped naked on the cross, absolute shame exposed to the world, but he brings to them white garments that he wants to put over their nakedness. 
these white garments are the works of righteousness done by the saints. It's our status before God, and he gives it to them freely. But if they say yes to this gift, they will carry out these works of righteousness out of love for him and his people. And if any of you have ever seen a local church or a Christian alive with the love of God, so alive with the love of God that you won't stop at anything to love your neighbor, it's beautiful. It's a sign and a foretaste of heaven. Jesus wants to give them the white garments. And he wants to give them eye salve, spiritual discernment, so that they can see themselves and God aright. The baptized imaginations that, can, that is able to participate in the reality of heaven. In the words of John Stott, Here is welcome news for naked blind beggars. They are poor, but Christ has gold. They are naked, but Christ has clothes. They are blind, but Christ has the eye salve. Let them no longer trust in their banks, their eye powders, and their clothing factories. Let them come to him. He can enrich their poverty, clothe their nakedness, and heal their blindness. He can open their eyes to perceive a spiritual world of which they have never dreamed. He can cover their sin and shame and make them fit to partake of the inheritance of the saints in light. He can enrich them with life and life abundant. Now as we consider our own life, maybe the story of the Laodiceans hits home. Maybe we feel no need for God. Maybe we've over-assimilated to the air around us. Maybe we're lukewarm. We lack passion for God. We're no longer a source of God's refreshing. We're no longer a source of God's healing. Maybe our, our wealth or our independence or our learning or our growing influence makes, it, makes us feel like we don't need God anymore. Maybe we've become so blind to our spiritual need because we've become useful. We become impressive, like the Laodiceans. But you know what? Maybe you can't relate with the Laodiceans. Maybe you don't. Because it's not so much that you don't need God. It's that for the life of you, you can't feel God. Something inside of you has gone numb. You're sitting at the table with Jesus, but you can't quite hold his gaze because the thrill is gone. The love has died. And in its place is spiritual doubt, confusion, deadness, and a massive disconnect between your head and your heart. If that's you, please know that Jesus has everything you need to return to your first love. His grace for you is inexhaustible. He's holding all the gifts in his hands, ready to give them to you, even tonight. So if that describes you and you feel numb, here are some diagnostic questions that Jesus might ask you tonight. When was the last time you ever let me satisfy you? Really? Have you ever been hungry enough to be hungry for my love? H have you ever been watchful enough, attentive enough or have every single time you've ever had any kind of hunger of the body, have you completely satisfied it to the overflow with the means and the tools you have available to you? Do you just not need me at all, really? 
I mean, think about it. Do you need me at all in your life? Have you ever made space in your life for me to satisfy you? Because there's a real strong connection, friends, between spiritual numbness and bodily indulgence. You know, Laodicea had the eye salve, but Chicago's got those gooey cinnamon rolls and Italian beef and the microbrews. Yeah, I mean, Laodicea, they had the banks, but Chicago has the internet. Netflix, Spotify, peer-to-peer video games, uh, free streaming porn of every variety, and all the Instagram attention you could ever want. Yeah, I mean, Laodicea could take care of your clothes, but Chicago can take care of your cravings like no other city. You can get your fill here with zero shame. It's encouraged. It's expected. People might like you better because you're not too good to overindulge with them. You might even feel closer to ultimate meaning. And now, who needs Jesus to satisfy you, really? When you have everything your body could ever want and ever need, and it's so cheap, and it's so acceptable, and it's so filling. We may have a whole different set of interests than the Laodiceans. And yet, we could say, we could just come to the same conclusion they did, say the same thing they did. I don't really need anything. I'm good. I'm totally oversatisfied. I'm so oversatisfied that I'm numb. I'm so oversatisfied that I'm starting to hate myself. I'm so oversatisfied that I, that I don't even want anything anymore. I'm just disconnected from my desires altogether. Per- personal indulgence and spiritual numbness are, are dancing partners. They, they go together. They follow one another. They feed one another. When was the last time you let Jesus satisfy you? Can you trust him with unsatisfied desire? Can you? Can you trust him with unsatisfied desire? Could he actually come in with his living water and his bread from heaven and and, and actually refresh you deeply more than anything else could? Can you imagine never being harassed again by unmet pleasure, by unmet desire? Can you imagine no longer being a slave to cravings? Jesus can heal the numbness. He can heal the head-heart split. He can heal the self-hatred. He can heal and bring you back to life. He says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Verse 20, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Isn't that interesting? That he wants to come in and eat with you and eat with me. What an invitation. Jesus stands at the door. He's not going to break the door down. Jesus respects you. Jesus acknowledges that that this is a conversation. Yes, he has passed through death and hell to get to the door of our life and knock and speak. 
He's not shouting. He's inviting, and it's personal. It's for you. Please listen to the voice of Jesus. It doesn't matter what's on the other side of the door. It doesn't matter if, if you're buried in a prison of self-hatred on the other side of the door. He doesn't want you to clean up. He wants you to listen and to let him in. It doesn't matter if, if you're on your fourth drink of the night. It doesn't matter if you're on your fourth hookup of the month. It doesn't matter. He is knocking at the door and he's saying, let me in. I, I actually want... This intervention is not going to be as painful as maybe Father Aaron's making it sound. I want to be with you. I want to satisfy you. I love you. Please know that, that his wounds are not condemning, that there's life and holiness and healing flowing out of those wounds for you. And he wants sweet fellowship and intimacy. He wants to save the relationship. He wants to savor the relationship. What's Jesus' invitation to you tonight? What is Jesus calling you to die to tonight? Not to prove anything to him, but because it's either him or that. One One of them will satisfy. For some, there's going to be something specific. There is a specific call. There's something to perhaps to confess, renounce. We've made a space to say yes to this invitation tonight. The cross will be laid out on the floor here. Let this be a carpeted, intimate space for you to say yes to Jesus and have a conversation with him. Come to the cross. Come to a prayer minister. Ask for more of Jesus. Open an area of your life that uh, up till now has been closed. Return to your first love. He's here tonight. He wants to minister to every man, woman, and child here. Some of us feel absolutely powerless to say yes to Jesus. And I want to say to you now, as a pastor who's been praying for you all week, that because of Jesus' cross, there is power for you to be free. There's power for you to say yes. And there's power for you to find healing and mercy and grace at the foot of the cross. Let me pray for us. And then we'll proceed with our solemn collects. Jesus, we pray that on the other side of the intervention, the truth would be healing and the tears would be sweet. And I pray, Lord, that we would look to you, we would look to your cross, so honest, so loving, and then instead of turning and running, we would walk closer and we would find you there. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.
Our Heavenly Father sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved, that all who believe in Him might be delivered from the power of sin and death, and become heirs with Him of everlasting life. We pray, therefore, for people everywhere according to their needs. Let us pray for the Holy Catholic Church of Christ throughout the world, for its unity and witness and service, for all bishops and other ministers and the people whom they serve, for Stuart Ruck, our bishop, for all Christians in this community, for those about to be baptized, for those about to be received as members, that God will conform his church in faith Increase it in love and preserve it in peace. Almighty and everlasting God, by whose spirit the whole body of your faithful people is governed and sanctified, receive our supplications and prayers which we offer before you for all members of your holy church, that in their vocation and ministry they may truly and devoutly serve you, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray for all nations and peoples of the earth, and for those in authority among them, for Barack Obama, the President of the United States, for the Congress and the Supreme Court, for the members and representatives of the United Nations, for all those who serve the common good, that by God's help they may seek justice and truth and live in peace and concord. Almighty God, kindle, we pray, in every heart the true love of peace and guide with your wisdom those who take counsel for the nations of the earth that in tranquility your dominion may increase until the earth is filled with the knowledge of your love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray for all who suffer and are afflicted in mind, in body or in mind, for the hungry and the homeless, the destitute and the oppressed, for the sick, the wounded, and the crippled, for those in loneliness, fear, and anguish, for those who face temptation, doubt, and despair, for the sorrowful and bereaved, for prisoners and captives, and those in mortal danger, that God in his mercy will comfort and relieve them and grant them the knowledge of his love and stir up in us the will and patience to minister to their needs. We do lift up all those in Uptown who are suffering in some way, suffering in the mind, suffering in the body, suffering from violence. We lift up also all the refugees that are suffering great uh, injustices and hunger and displacement. We ask for the compassion uh, of, of your church, compassion of your Holy Spirit to move us. Gracious God, the comfort of all who sorrow, the strength of all who suffer, 
Let the cry of those in misery and need come to you, that they may find your mercy present with them in all their afflictions. And give us, we pray, the strength to serve them for the sake of him who suffered for us, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray for all who have not received the gospel of Christ. For those who have never heard the word of salvation. For those who have lost their faith. For those hardened by sin or indifference. For the contemptuous and the scornful. For those who are enemies of the cross of Christ and persecutors of his disciples. For those who in the name of Christ have persecuted others. That God will open their hearts to the truth and lead them to faith and obedience. Merciful God, creator of all the peoples of the earth and lover of souls, have compassion on all who do not know you as you are revealed in your Son, Jesus Christ. Let your gospel be preached with grace and power to those who have not heard it. Turn the hearts of those who resist it, and bring home to your fold those who have gone astray, that there may be one flock under one shepherd, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us commit ourselves to our God and pray for the grace of a holy life, that with all who have departed this world and have died in the peace of Christ, we may be accounted worthy to enter into the fullness of the joy of our Lord and receive the crown of life in the day of resurrection. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery, by the effectual working of your providence. Carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up, and things which have grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Just a couple announcements. Um, Every Good Friday, one of our traditions is um, we, we give to an organization that is serving those who suffer. And this year we are, um, we are collectively um, being generous toward Bethany Christian Services, uh, which envisions a world where every child has a loving home. What Bethany Christian Services does is it connects foster children to families and orphans to families, but it doesn't stop there. What they do is that they then come around those families knowing that